This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. <laughs> We're talking today with Mike Aquilina, Executive Vice President of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. He's a widely recognized Catholic author and lecturer, popular church historian, and he is the host of the Way of the Fathers podcast, which you can find at catholicculture.org. We're talking today about his new book, Africa and the Early Church, The Almost Forgotten Roots of Catholic Christianity. It's published by Emmaus Road Publishing. Uh, You can find it at stpaulcenter.com. Mike, thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, thanks for having me back. It's always good to have you. One of the things that I most recognized as the need of mine when I came into the church was familiarity with the fathers and familiarity with the history. Like I came from a a Protestant background where I could quote uh, scripture without, you know, chapter and verse, no problem, without any hesitation. And I worked at, at a diocese shortly after I became Catholic and had a colleague who could quote the fathers like I could quote scripture. And I, I recognized very early on that that was something valuable to have because there's just such a groundedness about it of, of knowing where we come from. And I was intrigued by this book when it, when it came across my field of view, because I feel like specifically as we are uh, dealing with and trying to come to terms with living in a, a fractured, polarized culture that that's very intent on us and them. And, and honestly, that us and them has been going on for a very long time, just switching out who the us and who the them is. Um, I'm intrigued by this book because it acknowledges something of a we rather than an us and them. It's a, a we all together in this, uh, in this Catholic world, in this Christian world. And so I wanted to, to spend some time maybe expanding my own horizons and understanding a little bit more about that history and conversation with you, but also uh, looking at how that changes maybe our view of our current realities because of where we came from. So let's talk about this book, um, Africa and the, and the Early Church. The, you say it's the, the almost forgotten roots of Catholic Christianity. Uh, let's Let's talk about how did we get to this place first where we ended up in the almost forgotten space? Well, I think it's because Africa was was within the church very early on. I mean, there's there's evidence of Christianity in uh, in many African uh, locales uh, in the the first several centuries. Uh, but but Africa did not have the same degree of continuity that the the other Christian lands enjoyed. All right. In Europe. There was continuity. They remained Christian lands in the millennia that followed. They may be falling away right now. There's a lot of residual Christianity there. But there was continuity. There were always people there to tell the Christian story. Uh, in Africa, not so much. With the 600s and the 700s uh, you know, came the, the Arab invasions. And with the Arab invasions, there came an imposition of Islam upon the local peoples. Uh, the Christianity was, was marginalized at best and sometimes entirely suppressed in the country. Uh, and, and so there, there was a, kind of a break in the local story. Uh, there, there was a, a great archaeologist, Emma Loosely. She wrote a paper some years ago about uh, her studies in Antioch. She was on digs in, in not in Antioch, in, um, in Syria. Uh, she was uh, 
she was she was doing digs there and in talking to the local people, the local Christian population in particular, she found that they knew next to nothing about their local Christian history. They had a strong sense of Jesus Christ and and yeah. the fact that they were different. They were outsiders, but they did not know about this the, their local saints. They did not know about the important role that Syrian Christians played in the very early development of Christianity. They were unaware of this because it wasn't taught in the schools and it right. was something that uh, that it was not politically correct to bring up in public. So this is the story, I think, in much of Africa as well. It's the story in many of those African nations that were evangelized very early and were deeply Christian. Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Sudan, Egypt, all of these places were evangelized and had Christian cultures in the time awesome. of the fathers. So, obviously, we can see within the, that culture what is lost when the story is lost. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious if you have a sense of what we lose when that story is lost as well. Yeah. It's not necessarily, we don't think of it because it's a, it's a different locale. We yeah. don't think of it as our story, even though it very much is. Uh, it, first of all, we 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 lose access to this these beautiful expressions of Christianity that are that are significantly different from ours. The faith is the same, but the expressions are different. And I'm thinking in particular here of Egyptian Christianity, Coptic Christianity, which has endured through centuries and centuries of of persecution. Uh, and I'm thinking here of, of Ethiopian Christianity, which is something stunningly beautiful and quite different from our uh, our own expression. Uh, and and yet. Very few people in the West are even aware that these expressions of Christianity are still vibrant today in their own way. Um, so, so we lose that, first of all. But the other thing we lose is the sense of where we ourselves came from. You know, one of the important things I, I, I bring up in the book uh, is, is that, that much of what we have we owe to developments in African Christianity. You know, when we think about something as simple as the Nicene Creed. Well, that was crafted by a council that was summoned in response to a crisis in the church in Africa, in Egypt, in Alexandria. So, so there we have this pivotal event that gave us the creed that defines us as Catholics. We recite it every Sunday, and, and yet, you know, we, we don't think of that as an African development. Uh, more significantly, for, for us in the West, Catholics, but, but Lutherans and Calvinists as well, we look to Northern African figures as our most influential figures. You know, I'm yeah. thinking here primarily of Augustine, but not only of Augustine. And if Augustine had been the only person, mm -hmm. <laughs> the only right. Christian to emerge from Africa, we would still owe everything we have to Africa. Augustine mm -hmm. is just that kind of giant in church history. He's the the, the person most quoted outside right. the authors of sacred scripture by St. Thomas Aquinas in his yeah. Summa. He's the person most quoted outside of the authors in sacred scripture by the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So Augustine himself would be that way, but he's... He's not the only thing we owe to Africa. I believe we owe our Latin liturgy, the liturgy we have today, the Roman rite. We call it the Roman rite, but it's really the North African rite because the Africans were using uh, – they were using a Latin liturgy for centuries before the Romans were. 
you talk about uh, the um the the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Council being called to to solve a problem that popped up in Africa and Alexandria. But we also have problems being solved in Africa with the councils of the councils plural of Carthage. Yes, yes. Up to and and perhaps including the the canon of scripture. Yes, yes. Isn't that amazing? You know, we we owe kind of the um the 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 official proclamation the official promulgation of yes. our of our new testament canon old testament canon to these car, these these councils in north africa so so again you have the the creed you have the canon of sacred wow. scripture you have the figure of saint augustine and in addition to that, you have other figures like Tertullian and Cyprian, Lactantius, the man who who first uh, crafted the idea, um, articulated the idea of religious liberty. You know, the the founding fathers of our country, when they were thinking about about how how they could express the idea of religious freedom, decided to go back to the deepest roots of the of the concept. And um, and who did they consult? Well. They consulted Tertullian. They consulted Lactantius because those were the two men who introduced the idea into the civilizational bloodstream. So let's let's look because you and you mention several centers uh, as you go through the book. You talk about Carthage and Alexandria. You talk about um, the Ethiopian Christianity. Uh, kind of. Break out for us maybe the geography, and then we can go into some of the specific uh, the figures that helped shape where we are in our in our faith. Carthage was the major metropolis, the major seaport in um, in uh, in in the Roman province of Africa, and that Roman province included the lands that are today uh, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, right? That's right. Uh, and. Uh, and um, and and it was an important place. Uh, it, it it had been, Car- it, you back up a couple centuries, right? And Carthage and Rome had been at war with one another. They were rivals on the world scene, and they were fighting constantly. Uh, uh, you know, we all know about Hannibal bringing his elephants to Europe. You know, the elephants kind of uh, foundering at the Alps, that kind of thing. Uh, that that happened. That was real. That's not a fairy tale. And and this this fight went on for decades. Went on for more than a century. And the and and it was it was brutal. It was bloody. And the Romans uh, just grew in rage over that time. And uh, and it became a slogan that you found in the, in the public that Carthage must be destroyed. And when the Romans finally prevailed, they did destroy Carthage. They leveled it. And they colonized it with their own people, right? So Carthage becomes a Roman colony. Uh, But after that, there's interaction with all of the local peoples as well, because they're still living in all the surrounding areas there. Right. So there's there's interaction. uh, There's kind of this um, this new social cohesion that comes about, and there's a new and vibrant culture uh, that that emerges out of that uh, that synthesis, really. And and so right about the time of the rise of Christianity, there's a, a literary renaissance going on in Carthage, a legal renaissance, an economic renaissance. All of these these different fields are just ha- are just are being renewed by the encounter of the cultures. 
Uh, you know, many major figures in pagan literature come about at this time. The novelist Apuleius, the playwright Terence, uh, many legal scholars. Carthage became a center, uh, uh, an important center in the development of, of Roman legal thought. And, and Carthage was exercising an outsized influence on the Italian peninsula and especially on the, the imperial capital in Rome. So that Roman province ended up being extremely influential, especially especially in intellectual matters. And as, as Christianity began to grow there, the Christian church there became deeply influential on, on, um, on the church at large. So, so again, that's the province of, uh, of, of, of Roman Africa. Uh, in addition to that, uh, there's, the, uh, there, there's the land of uh, Egypt, right? And sometimes you'd attach to that Libya as well uh and uh and and it's yeah, it's yeah. it's kind of complicated the cultural influences around there but egypt and libya were usually lumped together uh and uh and egypt became an important center in the eastern church because alexandria was the great intellectual capital of the roman empire it had uh it had the great library in the world right. it had it had other research inst- institutions it had the lighthouse and the lighthouse became a symbol for alexandria which was a cultural beacon to the entire empire so you have alexandria as the greek speaking uh, cultural capital of of the empire and great figures emerged in the church from Alexandria, I'm thinking of of uh, Pantanus and Clement and Origen, and then Athanasius and Cyril. So many giants in church history, and of course, you already mentioned the Arian crisis, yep. which took place in Egypt and Libya, was uh, was the crisis that provoked the uh, this the um, the First Council of Nicaea. Uh, so, in addition to those two, we have the church in Ethiopia and Eritrea. Uh, and and that's that's an interesting development there because it's likely that there were Christians in Ethiopia from New Testament times. Right. You know, we we we, we have we, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in, in the right. Book of Acts. That's right. So we have that encounter already there, and we know that there was a Jewish culture established in Ethiopia, uh, according to tradition. The Queen of Sheba was the queen of. Ethiopia, the queen yeah. of the south. She she was she was the queen of Ethiopia, and and she she reigned there according to tradition. Again, she became pregnant by King Solomon, right? And she she carried on a a, a line of King David, a line of King Solomon in in Ethiopia. So there was Jewish culture there, and there were Jews going from Ethiopia to the Holy Land for the the feast days every year. They went would. Go there, likely encounter Christianity in uh, in Jerusalem and environs, and bring it back to their homeland. It's it's quite likely that this very influential man, who was uh, a member of the court of the Candace, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, brought the faith back to Ethiopia with him. And if he brought it back, he, he likely tried to spread the faith and 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 perhaps succeeded. Even beyond that, that one person you mentioned that in that many people from Ethiopia were going to Jerusalem, to Israel for those feasts. We see that at the at the Feast of Pentecost, where it says, look around us, aren't aren't we all from different places? Yes. And it's all outs- outsiders, quote unquote, coming to the festival. These are people who are obviously recognizing and 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 observing that specific feast because they're coming into to the city for that. These people 
on the day of Pentecost heard the gospel as well. So far from necessarily being just the one person taking it and spreading That's it right. back, you've got uh, scores of people who are returning back to their homes after that event, spreading Christianity. That's right. That's right. We don't have the the kind of documentation for Ethiopia that we have for some of the other countries. Uh, we uh, uh, we for a lot of reasons. I mean, Egypt is kind of the ideal because the climate preserves paper. It's a dry climate, and so we have we have an abundance of documentary records from Egypt, a, a casual correspondence of one churchman to another. We have that in Egypt, but we don't have it as much in Ethiopia. Um, what we do have from Ethiopia are some stunning early Christian churches that are carved out of a single rock. I mean, think of this, these, these massive rocks that are, that are hollowed out uh, with the church carved inside. And, and just this year, uh, just this year, uh, studies have been released that, that seem to confirm that these churches are from the fourth century. So already by that time, we have a Christianity that's deeply developed, very well developed and also um, influential has access to money to build churches and yeah. uh and and is uh and is crafting something beautiful and new on the world scene. Well the fourth century was a, a really vibrant time in Christianity in general. Yes. Uh, this is when we have uh the, a lot of the early baptismal homilies that are extant that we mm-hmm. that we read every year in the church fathers. Speaking of that time period, let's talk about Tertullian, because he's a a seminal figure in a lot of the ways that we still currently identify ourselves, uh, even though um, he's one of the few fathers of the church that doesn't have a little ST in front of his name. He's still (laughs) recognized by the church as a father of the church for his contributions. Let's let's talk a little bit about his specific state and and, uh, what he offered to us that we still are benefiting from today. Well, Tertullian was was an intellectual giant, and he was a great writer. He had a, he had a, a, a great style. Uh, I was just reading recently that uh, that in the in Renaissance Spain, it was fashionable to have these these uh, these little groups that would meet just to read the works of Tertullian and read them aloud because the style was so fluid, was so beautiful. He had a he had a gorgeous Latin style, great rhetorician, uh, likely an influential lawyer. He converted. Uh, as an adult, he he had been raised in the traditional Roman religion, the pagan religion, and he was living there in Carthage uh, and a respected person. He was a name in the town. Uh, so so in Carthage, we see Christianity uh, first appearing uh, above ground around 170 A.D. and um, and we 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 see the first evidence in the Acts of the Silitan Martyrs. Uh, so already there, we see a reason why like Christianity was underground. If you if you come up above ground, you likely get persecuted. You likely get martyred. So this is um this is something that uh that that was a condition of those earliest uh, Christian years. But likely there was a a, a critical mass. Uh, Christianity has had reached a critical mass within the population around 170 A.D. Many people became aware of them. Tertullian is writing to his fellow people of Carthage, often writing to pagan audiences, and he's kind of flexing Christian muscle when he writes. And he talks about how the Christians are everywhere. They're in every profession. They're in every establishment, every institution within our city, and you are dependent on us. So he's kind of daring 
the 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 people of Carthage, the government of Carthage, to do something about it. Right? We're everywhere. You need us, right? And not only that, you admire us. He quotes he quotes the um the uh, the the pagans, the pagan neighbors, his pagan neighbors, as saying, "See those Christians, how they love one another." Right? So yeah. Tertullian. Uh, emerges as this witness to growing Christianity in in North Africa and a powerful witness. He wrote so much and he wrote so well. He's the first theologian whose writings have survived in Latin, right? He could write in Latin and Greek, and he did, but most of his writings are in Latin and his Latin style was superb. And so he gives us lines that are just part of our our inner constitution as Western Christians. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Yeah. He's the guy who said that. Yeah. Uh, he said, see those Christians, how they love one another. I mean, we have songs based on that. Many songs, many hymns. Um, so he gave us these these uh, these wonderful lines that are just part of our, our makeup now. Uh, he also gave us theological terms. He's the one who introduced the word trinity, trinitas. Mm-hmm. Into the Western Church, uh, the reality was known in the in the Certainly. baptismal formula, but he's the one who gave us a term for it in the West. He also gave us the word sacramentum to describe the mysteries, the rites, the rituals of the Church. So we owe Tertullian so much. He's this major figure who arrives on the scene and uh, and 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 really demonstrates through his work that Christians Christians are here and we're staying. Well, and we in the in the Christian West, we often think of kind of a European centric Christianity, a Roman centric Christianity, um, and and Rome at that time was still writing in Greek. Yes, we, the, the liturgies were still in Greek. It, it was from Africa that we receive our our Latin um, expression of the faith. That's right. That's right. And the and the Africans, of course, were using this. I mentioned earlier, the Africans had a Latin liturgy for at least a century and maybe much more, maybe two centuries before the Christians in Italy, in Rome, caught up to Africa. And it's likely the Latin liturgy that we or the Latin liturgy of Africa that we adopted or adapted for our own purposes. So when we worship, you know, we're worshiping using African forms. So we obviously are are the beneficiaries of so much that that happened in those early centuries in Africa. Um, what difference does it make to us today? And and I would say that it does. But what difference does it make to us today that we know that we are worshiping with with these um, these this heritage of African Christianity? Yeah, uh, you know, you you brought up earlier that a lot of people um, identify Christianity with Europe. Right. Uh-huh. And even uh, Hilaire Belloc was famous for that, that he he uh, identified Christianity with European culture, European civilization. And, and that's just wrong. And it can lead to a, a lot of bad habits of mind. Uh, we need to know that there are important expressions of Christianity that are African, also Indian uh, uh, and uh, and and Chaldean and and all of these uh, these other expressions that have been there since the early centuries of the church and have continued in the church since then. I mean, right now they might be practiced by a minority within the church, but that's still a substantial number of people in the world. Uh, to be Catholic is to see that God intends salvation to reach everyone 
every person on earth. And and he does not privilege any people over others. You know, he, that was the case in the Old Testament. That that was the case with the Old Covenant, that he chose his people and he cultivated their holiness and he sequestered them. You know, he quarantined them so that they could stay holy, right? But then the New Testament was supposed to uh, kind of blow out the walls and uh, and bring holiness to the entire world. It's amazing that by the end of the apostolic generation, uh, the, the faith had re- reached so many people, uh, the ends of the earth, so to speak, at least the earth as it was known at that time. You, you talk about uh, Coptic Christianity and the four-time Alexandrian Christianity, Christianity in North Africa and Carthage. Um, we often forget that in the Catholic Church, there are rights. There mm-hmm. are multiple rights, uh, and people who are worshiping as Catholics with different liturgies than than we than we experience, and I'm t- I'm not talking about the difference between Novus Ordo and and the Tridentine Mass. Mm-hmm. I'm talking there are Ethiopic Catholics. Yes, yeah. there there are uh, Eastern uh, or Oriental Orthodox Coptics who have no communion with Rome, but there are Coptics who are Catholic. There are yes. Maronites who are Catholic. There are people who are worshiping. In, in styles that I don't know that we would recognize, mm-hmm. um, who are fully living out their Catholic Christianity in a way that is not Latin and would not necessarily immediately be recognizable to us. Oh, yeah. In Armenia, in Persia, in India, in so many places. And, and, and the, the heritage of the church is so rich. It's so great. That if all you know is your suburban parish and you think of that as kind of the standard, as the norm for Christianity, you're just missing out on so much. You're missing out on traditions of iconography. You're missing out on traditions of music. You're missing out on traditions of liturgy, as you pointed out, and architecture. Think about those amazing churches in Ethiopia that are hollowed out of a single stone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've never been there. What I would give to see those churches, you know, Uh, it's... um, it's an amazing, it's an amazing reality we have in a church that we call Catholic. Catholic means universal. It means the whole enchilada. You know, we we um we we have so much in the church and we remain aware unaware of it. Even like the Hagia Sophia, right there in Constantinople, the the architecture and and how many book covers, right? Do we have? <laughs> In uh, even in American Christianity, that are icons from Byzantine Christianity, which is again a different expression that we currently go to each and every week. Right? Mm-hmm. We are a, a, we have a wealth of Christianity that we can feed ourselves with um, to have a variety and still be in communion with Rome. Right? Yes. To to be able to go and experience. The full breadth of our Christianity, I think, is something that uh, that we would all benefit from. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Mike Aquilina, author of the book, Africa and the Early Church, The Almost Forgotten Roots of Catholic Christianity, that's published by Emmaus Road Publishing. Be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. And don't go anywhere because there's much more to come right after this. Listen to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today with Mike Aquilina. He is the Executive Vice President of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, a widely recognized Catholic author and lecturer and a popular church historian. The, the book that we're talking about today uh, is Africa and the Early Church, The Almost Forgotten Roots of Catholic Christianity, published by Emmaus Road Publishing. Mike, thank you again for being with us today. I love being here. We always have a great conversation. So we're talking about experiencing the the breadth of of Catholic Christianity and of Christianity writ large um, with the different the various different rites. When I was in the Diocese of Tulsa, we have um, their Maronite parish, mm-hmm. and uh, up where I am now, we've got a Byzantine parish just down the road. Um, and there is something about engaging with those communities, recognizing our our sameness in that we are we we belong to one another. It's not just to the people in our own parish that we can say with Paul that we are members of one another, mm-hmm. but but we look to those who share that common baptism, who are who are adopted into the family of God by virtue of that baptism. And we look to them and we say, we are members of one another. And this is something that we see very often in the African church very well, mm-hmm. uh, because when you are suppressed, when there is persecution, there's really not a whole lot of time for distinction and for division. Um, and so that's that's another thing that as we look to them is something that we can currently gain is let's Let's forget about our own polarization and let's remember our responsibility and our relationship to one another. Yes, yes, yes. I think that that this became uh, very evident just a few years back when um, when when all of those uh, those Coptic Christians uh, were martyred for the faith, yeah. and it was done on video, you know, and it was broadcast to the world. So people saw this happening, and all of a sudden, you see a proliferation of icons in the Coptic style uh, on on the web, you know, mm-hmm. th- that we see how quickly this happens. Uh, that 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 the martyrs are venerated within the church. Well, you know that should be a wake up call to us. This is the way our earliest ancestors were in the Christian church through centuries one, two, three, four. You know, into into, into century four, uh, the the Roman persecution was going on, and it continued in the centuries afterward in the Persian Empire and and elsewhere. So so we need to. Uh, we need to be aware that this is still happening today. That we have we have brothers and sisters all over the world mm-hmm. who are enduring persecution. They're suffering right now. They need our prayers. They need our awareness. And and if we are the kind of people who wield some influence, they need our action. They need us mm-hmm. to raise our voices. Uh, and and um, and it doesn't help them if they don't hear our voices. If they feel they're alone, they're isolated from from the family elsewhere on earth, forgotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you talked about um, about Cyprian. I, I want to bring us back to the fathers here, and I want to yeah. talk about uh, the Alexandrian Center. Uh, we have another prolif- prolific writer there. We've got uh, Origen, but we also have Augustine, as you mentioned, uh, and we have Athanasius. So let's let's hone in on Athanasius. He's one I don't feel like we get a lot of uh, of play on. We don't hear a lot of his name. Uh, and yet, 
he defined some really specific things for us. We've got the Athanasian Creed, which I, I don't know that I could right now off the top of my head recite to you. <laughs> and no. yet, and yet it's fundamental and foundational in the way we understand the faith. It is. It is. Athanasius is a major figure because uh, uh, we keep coming back to this one crisis, right? The oh. the the crisis of Arianism and the that was the the crisis that was um that was uh, the 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 reason for the 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 Nicene Council uh, and the reason for the Nicene Creed. So there's a heresy arising in Alexandria, uh, and and the uh, the bishop of Alexandria named Alexander uh, opposes this heresy. Kind of gets support from some other bishops, and uh, and yet the heresy continues to grow. It continues to spread within the church, and the emperor becomes very much concerned. Constantine becomes concerned because it's dividing not only the church but the empire. Right? right. There are factions polarizing, uh, factions going on, and this is this is a terrible thing that's happening. So he decides to do something about it. He summons the council. Um, Athanasius is the successor. Of Alexander, Athanasius had attended the Council of Nicaea as Alexander's advisor, as his theologian, and um, and he was a great theologian, and Alexander recognized that. What's interesting is that Athanasius almost alone ends up defending the apostolic faith against this incursion uh, mm-hmm. by by a heresy. Uh, you know, one of the the emperors taunted him and uh, and and told him, you know, you 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 stand as Athanasius against the world, and yeah. uh, and it did seem that he was fighting everybody else. He was outnumbered. He kept, the, you know, there there were attempts made on his life. He was exiled multiple times. He spent most of the years he was bishop in exile outside his see. So he's traveling the world, and everywhere he went, he continued to advocate for the Orthodox faith, the faith that was established by the apostles once for all. Not only exiled, but with someone else usurping his his role and pretending right. to be bishop. That's right. That's right. So you have that problem going on. Athanasius is a major figure because he's the, he's the continuity in, in the Nicene faith during his lifetime. Now, at the end of his life, he was able to see a new generation arising of theologians like mm. Basil the Great, Gregory of uh, Nazianzus, and uh, and Gregory of Nyssa. He was able to witness this, and he could see that the faith was in good hands as it went to the next generation. But the, the danger was still very real, and the Arian heresy remained a threat at the time of his death. Mm. So he is a major figure. I want to men- mention another guy that you mentioned at the beginning of your litany of these African fathers, and that's Cyprian, Cyprian of Carthage, who was a great bishop, lived, uh, you know, around the year 250, right in the middle of the third century. Uh, and this is an important time for the church because it's it's the time when the church faced its most widespread and methodical uh, persecution by the Romans. This is the first time this happened. We, it would happen again under Diocletian, but this was the first time it happened, and it was it was terrible. At the same time, the the world was facing a pandemic. Uh, that you know, we're not sure what the disease was, but it was killing a lot of people. Sometimes it would hit your city, and within weeks, a third of the population of your city would be dead. Um, and this happened in all the major centers. It's, it's, it's Cyprian who faced that um, with creativity, the kind of creativity we've come to expect from the church. And he is, you know, almost by accident, 
he established a new institution called the hospital, right? This, there had never been anything like this in civilization up to that this point. But Cyprian created it as a response to the pandemic. And he told Christian doctors that they were to treat members of all religions and exclude no one. They were to be like Christ and go out to everyone. So we see this Catholic attitude, this universal attitude where where the Christians are even giving medical care and saving the lives of their pagan persecutors. This is an amazing thing, and it created an institution that endures today and is a hallmark of civilization. So many of these names that you have mentioned and so many more, we have in the Roman canon. We hear yeah. uh, if they pray Eucharistic prayer number one. Yes. Uh, and and we have to get to a place where we pull them out of their their uh, place on the shelf. Yes. We put the, the, their the, their place of display, and into a place where we are we're in conversation with them and their contributions to understand yes. that that these aren't just things that have popped up recently. That that these are deep threads in our faith and the controversies that they faced then are truly not at all different from the controversies that we experience in our current realities. Even as you look at, um, you know, you talk about Arianism, we, we've brought that up multiple times here. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because they no longer follow the guy named Arius, we still have expressions of basically the same thing as Arianism and Nestorianism and all of these other isms that manifest themselves in our in our world today slightly differently because we're in different times. But mm-hmm. the core the core thoughts and the core underpinning beliefs, we still have these things today, and and we don't have to reinvent the wheel to counteract that because these conversations and disagreements and controversies have already been settled by the councils if we'll only take the time to access that information. That's right. And and really there's no better articulation against many of those heresies than the than than the arguments that we find in um in in Augustine. Uh-huh. You know, he remains a giant and we are dependent on him. And if we're smart, we go back to him and we read him and we learn from him and we we um, we adapt those answers to the, the circumstances of our own time. I'd say that we're we're um, we're, we're impoverished if we don't know, for example, uh, the, the, the life of Perpetua. And Felicity, you know, uh, the two martyrs of the early church who are who are there in the Roman canon, and we've got to make sure that they're not just fossilized in the Roman canon. That we got to make sure they're more than names to us, because they were both rich, vibrant characters who became who died for the faith around the year two hundred and became well known in the universal church almost immediately. Perpetua kept a prison diary. It became a worldwide bestseller among Christians at a time of persecution when it was illegal to own Christian books. So you were risking your life by owning this book, by reading this book. And yet people wanted to read it. They wanted to read her prison diary because it was so inspirational, because it showed them something. I think it shows us something too. It shows us that for the first time, a woman is writing in Latin. And she's influencing hundreds and thousands of others all around the world. Show me another pagan woman author from that same century, right? Uh 
who has the same kind of effect. Right. Or just show me another pagan woman author from that century. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know of another one. You know, no one is is changing the world the way the Christians are, and these figures are emerging who are so much more than than we allow them to be if we just fossilize them uh, in prayers. We we need to know them, encounter them. They left us their writings for a reason and uh and we got to read them. So let's talk about finding their writings and reading them. Obviously, most of us don't read Latin, but yeah. luckily there are m- modern uh, critical translations that are available out there. Um, I know that you, you're you very fond, you've got it behind you on the shelf, you're very fond of the Ancient Christian comment, uh, Commentary series from IBP. Um, what are some of the other uh, ways that you would recommend people make first contact with the fathers. Obviously there's your podcast host, uh, the, the way of the father's podcast on Catholic culture network. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one way to engage with it, but, but that's still not their writings. We're, we're still not getting into conversation directly with them. So what are the, maybe the translations that you gravitate towards and recommend? Uh, what are some access points for us to be able to begin that conversation with ourselves and the fathers? Well, first of all, you should be aware that there's a lot of literature left from from that time period. You know, I once uh, was uh, seated on a plane next to an evangelical librarian at a, at a seminary, and she was just unaware of this. She did not know that we had so many um, writings uh, from that from that time period. We do so. The first thing that'll happen if you go looking for the fathers is you'll just be overwhelmed. Right. You'll see there's so much. How? Uh, where do I even begin? You know, I can I can adjust my camera this way, and you're going to see <laughs> the stacks. You know, in yeah. every every direction. Um, so uh, you know, you can, you can become overwhelmed. But uh, I'll tell you something. You go to newadvent.org/fathers wow. or go to tertullian.org/fathers. And you'll see so many writings from that time period that are available to you for free. Uh-huh. They're there in good translations. And, and I would start with some simple things. I would start with, um, with Tertullian's Apologeticum. I would start with Perpetua's Diary. Uh, they're in those places, and they're free, and they're good translations. Mm-hmm. And you can begin by, uh, by reading these, these, uh, these easy reads— and 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 getting an imaginative entry into that time it's a it's a picture you get of the culture and what it was like to be a christian in the culture at that time it's 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 news that was as being broadcast live uh from from tertullian's mind from from perpetua's mind to yours uh so that's where i would begin uh, if you want a, 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 an introduction, I wrote one. It's called The Fathers of the Church, an Introduction to the First Christian Teachers. It's available from our Sunday Visitor, and it includes you know, all of those, those African fathers I've been referring to. Uh, so you'll get, you'll get kind of brief hits on them. So you need a, you need kind of a, uh, just an entry point into the fathers. Mm -hmm. And and I'd say that those websites will do it. My book will do it. And, Mm -hmm. and also Africa and the early church. (laughs) Right. You you mentioned that we have such a, a glut of, um, of writings from the fathers. Um, we have, and you've got bookshelves and bookshelves behind you of of works from the fathers, and yet there's still so much that we haven't yet translated into English. Yes, uh, there's the there's this. Um, I think it's Bilmed that put together the Patrologia Completus, 
mm-hmm. uh, and it's what 400, 500 volumes. Yes, that only a fraction of those have been translated into English. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's happening. It's happening slowly. Uh, but some some of these African fathers, like Cyril of Alexandria, we only have that tiny fraction of his yeah. work uh, rendered in English at this point. But I do know that there is an effort going on right now to bring many of those 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 uh, writings that are inaccessible to us right now into English editions in in yeah. the coming years. And there uh, there are a number of different places who are actively publishing. IVP, we mentioned earlier, you've got yes. the, the ancient Christian commentary, ancient Christian texts, uh, but you've got popular patristics from St. Vladimir's Seminary. You've yes. got- The uh, Ancient the, Christian Writers series. You have the yeah. Catholic University of America series. And and all of these are, are really making an effort to bring the African fathers uh, into print in English yeah. editions that, that, are, that are available and affordable. So whenever you write a book, you are um, you are compiling everything that you know and a and and a handful of things you don't uh, into uh, into a new place. So you you start off with an idea, but then you do research and you get uh, further in and you learn new things in that process. You certainly I'm, do. I'm curious, can you uh, bring for us some knowledge here that? that was new to you in the compiling of this book? I think that the big eye-opener for me was uh, the history of the liturgy, that the, the, the Latin liturgy, which is the liturgy, which is the tradition that we, we live in, most of us Catholics here in America, um, uh, was, was, was quite likely originally Latin uh, or, or African. And it was it was from Africa that it went to Italy and and then to the to the rest of the world. Uh, it w- th- that development was kind of eye-opening for me. I did not realize quite how long it took the African liturgy uh, to reach Italy and mm-hmm. uh, and and change at the capital and and then um, and then go out to the rest of the world. But this to me uh, kind of shows us the debt we have. To uh, to Roman Africa and to to Africa yeah. in general, and uh, made me very grateful. Yeah, the book is Africa and the Early Church: The Almost Forgotten Roots of Catholic Christianity, published by Emmaus Road Publishing. We've been talking with Mike Aquilina, Executive Vice President of the Saint Paul Center for Biblical Theology, uh, and host of the Way of the Fathers podcast. I encourage you to go listen to that over at CatholicCulture.org. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thanks for having me on, TL. If you missed any part of my conversation with Mike Aquilino or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. There in the guest list in the top menu bar, you can find Mike's name and listen to the other episodes. We've had them on a couple of times and you can go back and listen to those as well. And if you're looking for more, well, I've got good news. There is always more. First of all, as we mentioned there in the show, Mike is the host of The Way of the Fathers. You can find that over at catholicculture.org. Well worth your time there. Uh, But you can also get an extra segment from our conversation because each and every week we record an extra segment uh, that we make available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. They get access six months earlier than everyone else. After about six months, those extra segments are made available to the general public. You can find that by going over to OutsideTheWalls.com, clicking the Patreon link there in uh, in the menu bar and scrolling through the available extra segments there. Perhaps you want to get those segments early. Consider joining that 
support community that helps keep us on the air. Otherwise, go back and look through those archives and enjoy things that you missed the first time around. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the fathers in the doctors of the church, catechism, magisterial documents, and so much more. You can learn more over at Verbum.com. Our reading today comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That reading comes from the book of Revelation chapter 7. And the the author of Revelation, St. John, has just gone through uh, counting a number of different groups. And then at the end of all of these different counting uh, pieces that he's doing, he comes and he says, And then I looked, and there was a crowd, a great multitude, that no one could number. Not even saying I, I couldn't number. No one could number. And he then lays out this vision for the church, this universal, this Catholic church, that in includes every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. There is no one left out of this this group. Uh, the people who look like us and people who don't look like us, people who worship according to our liturgy and people who don't worship according to our liturgy, people who are uh, those who belong to God. And they all gather together and in one voice and with the same message at this point in time, they say, and they, they fall on their faces and they worship God, all, all blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. I think too often we we try to find uniformity instead of seeking unity. And this here is a picture of of rich diversity all coming together for a single purpose, to worship this God who made us, who saved us, who, as we're coming this week into Holy Week, um, who suffered for us and giving him the honor and the worship that he deserves. Our reading today uh, from Church History, we're going to read from a treatise on the Lord's Prayer by St. Cyprian, who we talked about quite a bit there in the main episode. Above all, he who preaches peace and unity did not want us to pray by ourselves in private or for ourselves alone. We do not say, My Father who art in heaven, nor give me this day my daily bread. It is not for himself alone that each person asks to be forgiven, not to be led into temptation, or to be delivered from evil. Rather, we pray in public as a community. 
and not for one individual, but for all. For the people of God are all one. God is then the teacher of harmony, peace, and unity, and desires each of us to pray for all men, even as he bore all men in himself alone. Three young men, shut up in the furnace of fire, observed this rule of prayer. United in the bond of the Spirit, they uttered together the same prayer. The witness of Holy Scripture describes this incident for us so that we might imitate them in our prayer. Then all three began to sing in unison, blessing God. Even though Christ had not yet taught them to pray, nevertheless they spoke as with one voice. It is for this reason that their prayer was persuasive and efficacious. For their simple and spiritual prayer of peace merited the presence of the Lord. So too, after the ascension, we find the apostles and the disciples praying together in this way. Scripture relates, they all joined together in continuous prayer with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They all joined together in continuous prayer. The urgency and the unity of their prayer declares that God, who fashions a bond of unity among those who live in his home, will admit into his divine home for all eternity only those who pray in unity. My dear friends, the Lord's Prayer contains many great mysteries of our faith. In these few words, there is great spiritual strength. For this summary of divine teaching contains all of our prayers and petitions, and so the Lord commands us, pray then like this, Our Father, who art in heaven, we are new men. We have been reborn and restored to God by His grace. We have already begun to be His sons, and we can say, Father. John reminds us of this. He came to His own home, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who receive Him, who believe in His name, He gave the power to become children of God. Profess your belief that you are sons of God by giving thanks. Call upon God, who is your Father in heaven. That reading comes from a treatise on the Lord's Prayer by St. Cyprian of Carthage. And that's a challenge. How often, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, do we, um, in ourselves, focus our intention on the whole church? I know that that's not the first thing that pops into my mind. I think that I am corporately praying I have thought, I have felt like I'm corporately praying with the other people that are in the room, praying these things for myself. And, and yet here, St. Cyprian challenges us to take this idea of belonging to one another to an even higher degree, and to say, even as we're praying the Lord's Prayer, this prayer that Christ himself taught us, we should be focusing ourselves on praying those intentions for the whole community. That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's show was brought to you by Brandy Carey and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and consider becoming a part of that community. Be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, Facebook.com slash StepOutsideTheWalls. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace.
This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.